Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 12, Latin American Tragedy. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. doing a coffee tasting today here in Bangkok, Thailand. This is Ashley. As you might remember from a couple episodes ago, I introduced her. This is my girlfriend. We are going to be trying, um, what are we trying today? Peru Amazonas Condapuna. That one. And we're going to be pairing it with roti, which is a Thai dessert. I like to think it's sort of crepe-esque. And it's got chocolate on it to kind of go with the chocolate from the, the Amazon Peru thing. So we'll see how it goes. I'm gonna start smelling it. Oh, it smells pretty good, actually. A little roasty, a little sweet. I'm gonna say the... roast, roasty, like it reminds me of like a fire. I'm not getting the chocolate though. Almost a little bit of like dirt. From the smell, at least. I don't. I don't know what you're getting. Roasty and earthy. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's try smelling it. Like, but not like it. fruity or herbal, but earthy. Earthy herbal. Let's see. Oh, it was I thought it was gonna be acidic. It was like had an acidic kick, and then it was like a nice smooth finish. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite get bitter. Didn't quite get acidic. That was interesting. We made this in a French press, and I think that's going to affect it as well, because it's definitely more smooth, like mm-hmm. you would expect from a French press. Yep. You want to try pairing it? Mm-hmm. See what that does? Oh, there's banana in it, too. Mm-hmm. The banana did something interesting with it. The chocolate paired really well, because I know it's supposed to have, like, fruity notes, but I don't think banana yeah, was the right fruit. Big. Yeah. The chocolate did good with it, though. And I feel like the... Whatever the bread is, also did something good with it. Jonathan Morris breaks up the history of coffee into five eras, with the first being its period of time in Ethiopia, Yemen, and the Islamic world. The second period of time is its spread through Europe and their colonies. Next is coffee as a product in the Industrial Revolution, which is the era we have just recently entered. The final two eras of coffee are as a global commodity and as a specialty item. But let us focus on coffee during the period of time referred to as the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, like the Age of Enlightenment, is a Western description for a period of time taking place from around 1760 to 1840. One part of the Western world, and one which will be the focus of today's episode, is Latin America. This region, however, was slow to industrialize, and for some countries, it was as a result of coffee they were forced to begin modernizing in this new industrial world. Latin America is a term used to describe the area from Mexico to Chile, including the Caribbean and Central and South America. The term was coined by Napoleon III, who was attempting to gain control of the region using the term to suggest a unifying cultural heritage of the Latin-based languages spoken in the various countries. 
Unlike coffee history thus far, which has fueled many examples of advancement for society in the form of social reform, revolution, philosophy, and art, the history of coffee in Latin America is, in many ways, a counterexample of this. I named the episode Latin American Tragedy, and I think by the end of the episode we will see whether or not this is fitting. As we discussed previously, coffee was introduced to Latin America by the French officer de Cleo, who stole a coffee plant from the Royal Garden in Paris and took it with him to the French colony of Martinique in 1723. The tree he planted there is the ancestor for most of the coffee grown in modern-day Latin America. It was in 1727, and coffee made its way to Brazil after a dispute between a French and Dutch governor broke out in French and Dutch Guana. The two governors requested a neutral Portuguese mediator be called to decide the border dispute. The Portuguese-Brazilian official Francisco de Melo Paleta agreed to mediate and in the process had an affair with the French governor's wife, Madame Dovier. Before returning to Brazil, she gave him flowers with coffee beans hidden inside. The coffee seeds were taken to Brazil, leading the country to begin harvesting its own coffee, and it quickly took off across the country. Between 1814 and 1817, coffee dropped down to around 14 cents a pound, but then grew to nearly twice that price as coffee demand grew globally. During this time, Brazilian coffee increased in production and much of the Amazon was cleared to make room for ever-growing coffee plantations. Brazil, by the mid-19th century, was a massive world producer of coffee, exporting huge amounts of coffee at low prices. On Brazil's journey to become a leading coffee producer, the colony first became a kingdom under King John VI who was forced out of Portugal after Napoleon invaded in 1807 and forced the royal family to flee to South America. While in Brazil, the king pushed to grow the coffee industry and wished to increase exports out of the country. After leaving the country and returning to Portugal in 1820, King John left his son Dom Pedro in charge of the subordinated colony. However, two years later, Brazil again became a kingdom, this time after waging a war of independence against Portugal under Dom Pedro. During Dom Pedro's reign and his successor, Dom Pedro II, the country continued climbing in coffee production. Originally, it was sugarcane which fueled Brazil's economy, but after 1820, the price of sugar dropped. Farmers and workers moved to grow coffee, many to the area of Rio de Janeiro, where the climate was better suited for coffee. This region, which held rich soil, was mostly untouched due to mining in the region that distracted from other economic pursuits. The coffee grown in Rio de Janeiro was not from the love affair of Paleta, but coffee brought over by a Belgian monk. The monk was a man named Monk, who in 1774 presented coffee seeds to the Capuchin Monastery at Rio. The brown robes worn by Capuchin monks, as you may remember, is where we get the name the Cappuccino. Over time, the Bishop of Rio became a patron of coffee, helping to further its growth in the region. Brazil was able to export coffee on a massive scale, due in part to the ease of coffee's production as opposed to rubber or sugar, which required greater infrastructure to produce. So quickly did coffee production increase in Brazil that in 1820, the price of coffee internationally plummeted. 
1850, the country was growing 50% of the world's coffee. And by 1906, they produced nearly five times as much as the rest of the world combined. As in other coffee-growing regions, Brazil began relying on slave labor, with Rio slave imports rising from 26,000 in 1825 to over 43,000 only three years later. For context, at this time, slaves made up nearly one-third of the country's total population. Pressure from Brazil's ally, England, led them to abolish the importation of slaves in 1831. This law was heavily ignored and unenforced, however, and over the next 17 years, the number of annual slaves imported would rise to 60,000 in 1848. As a result of ignoring the law, Britain began to capture Brazilian slave ships, leading Brazil to ban slave importing for good. It was in 1871, Emperor Pedro II declared the Law of the Free Womb, which made every newborn person in Brazil free, no matter their parents' status, slowly ending slavery as no new slaves could be produced. But this led to backlash by many of the wealthy plantation owners, like one man in 1880 who declared, quote, Brazil is coffee, and coffee is the Negro, end quote. As a result of this decline in slaves, many landowners began bringing over European immigrants and giving them land in exchange for harvesting coffee as a form of repayment, which became known as the colonial system. Brazil destroyed much of its environment to grow sugar and coffee, cutting down much of the Amazon to create new land for growing every year. Over time, the lands around Rio de Janeiro became unsuitable for growing, and they were forced to move southwest to find new lands for harvesting. Throughout the third quarter of the 19th century, Brazil began modernizing to keep up with demand for coffee. Utilizing technology from the Industrial Revolution, they began building a railroad in 1877 to transport coffee to the coast and shipped it from sailboats to steam-powered boats over the next decade. Railroads became so important, in fact, the number increased from 800 miles of track in 1874 to 6,000 miles in 1889, all linking Rio to the coffee-growing regions of the southwest. This move did not help link the country, but merely created further dependency for the country on exporting coffee. In 1884, many immigrants began moving to coffee plantations in the southwestern region of Brazil, and by 1914, more than a million immigrants had arrived to work as colonos. The colonial system was similar to feudalism in medieval Europe, giving the immigrants land to grow crops on with the primary focus being coffee production. They were allowed to grow other fruits as well and could often keep the first sell of coffee, which generally took four years for the plants to produce. Some colonos would eventually gain their own land, while others would return to Europe. But in some cases, even these colonos would revolt against the harsh conditions of the landowners and their armed guards. The new colonos system was so effective, it led to the total abolishment of slavery in 1888 by Don Pedro II's daughter, Isabella, under the Golden Law. A year after this, coffee barons in Sao Paulo overthrew the royal family, creating a new republic under the Paulistas. 
The abolishment of slavery did not create a new population of coffee workers because the plantation owners preferred European migrants over Afro-Brazilians due to racial biases. The colonial system was so successful in Brazil, it increased coffee production from 5.5 million bags a year in 1890 to 16.3 million by 1901. Brazil gained greatly from exporting coffee, but suffered by not being able to support its own people from any other form of food production and instead relied completely on importing all of its necessities from other places. Lacking sufficient shipping for large-scale international trade, England acted as a sort of coffee exporter for Brazil. In this sense, it is interesting England not only encouraged coffee consumption in the United States from anti-British sentiments from the American Revolution, but they also supplied the U.S with Brazilian coffee, furthering the United States' love of coffee. As Brazil became the leading coffee producer, the U.S. became the world's largest coffee consumer and roaster. Brazilian coffee was of lesser quality, however, and became mixed with superior coffees such as those from Colombia, which could not match Brazil's production, though instead created higher quality coffee beans. Coffee is said to have been introduced to Colombia by Jesuit priests who had the members of their parish plant coffee as a penance to God. At the northern tip of the once great Inca Empire, the terrain of the Andean Mountains made the construction of railroad unfeasible. Coffee then was carried down the mountainside by mules to rivers for transport to the Caribbean. Colombia adopted a method of producing coffee from Guatemala, which involved using shade trees. They used this practice, along with selective picking ripe cherries, and utilized wet processing, as opposed to Brazil's natural drying process. Different areas of the country began using different systems to grow their coffee, with sharecropping in Santander, tenant farming in Antioquia, and a more elaborate system of latifundia in Cundinamarca. The name Latifundia comes from the Roman word used to describe a large estate. These large estates in Colombia were controlled by the elite, allowing for massive land inequality in the country and resulting in violent disputes. As a result of World War I, Colombia became the second largest coffee producer in the world. They increased their output from 61,000 metric tons in 1913, one year before the outbreak of the First World War, to 256,000 tons in 1938, the year before the start of the Second World War. The working conditions for many Latin American coffee farmers vary depending on a person's age and gender. Men did much of the hard physical labor, while women and children were hired to do much of the sorting and occasional harvesting. Men were usually preferred over women and children, so they were not paid as much as men, resulting in them doing many of the tedious tasks. Everyone, including women and children, worked long hours, and oftentimes women were taken advantage of, such as cases of being raped and men taking money from their wives' or children's wages. For Guatemala, this system would lead to poor labor conditions in which people attempted to revolt, but would only lead to a corrupt government fueled financially by the coffee industry. Guatemala, after becoming an independent nation in 1839, 
relied heavily on cochineal, a red dye produced from an insect to support their economy. By 1853, coffee began to be exported and over the next few years became a major export for the country. The country of Guatemala has active volcanoes, which produce ash, good for giving nutrients to the soil, which helps with coffee growth. However, the problem in this period was indigenous Mayans who often lived on much of the volcanic hillside. In 1871, liberals overthrew the conservative government and placed General Justo Rufino Barrios into power in 1873. Barrios was a coffee grower and so enacted several liberal reforms to help increase coffee production by stealing indigenous land. Under his authority, the country raised coffee production from 149 million kilograms in 1873 to over 1 billion kilograms by 1909. These reforms were influenced heavily by America's mistreatment of indigenous people in the aggressive acquisition of their land. However, unlike America, where they used African slave labor, or Brazil, who did the same and then shifted to immigrant labor, Guatemala was unable to obtain enough of either, so forced the Mayan population to work the land, often the very same ones being kicked off the land. The Mayans of Guatemala did not care for the low wages offered for manual labor on plantations, and so the government set in place forced labor. To avoid this state-mandated labor, many of the native Guatemalans fled out of the country or into the mountains. In response, the government set up a militia army to prevent this mass flight of people. This new regime was now militarized and funded by coffee exports. Further, the country was a long way away from the more egalitarian government originally set in place nearly three decades before by the conservative Rafael Carrera, who helped to found the country and was part indigenous himself. While there were attempts at revolt by native population, this only resulted in costly casualties for themselves. So over time, they revolted by simply doing less labor and requesting higher wages and better working conditions. As was a problem throughout the Americas as a whole, the indigenous population faced the issues of European diseases which affected the workers as well as their communities on returning home. Guatemalan coffee, and much of Central American coffee today, is grown under the shade of larger trees, which helps to regulate the amount of sun hitting the coffee plants, and further to prevent the coffee trees from overpopulating. The coffee is then harvested using the wet method, which creates a more bright, acidic taste with a fuller body. This method uses a greater amount of water, but for Guatemala, the system worked well because of its abundance of water from the mountains and more advanced technology brought over by German immigrants. The shaded, wet-grown coffee became a superior bean to most people and were known as milds, while Brazilian coffee became known for having poor quality and taste. Guatemala wash processing method adds to the acidity of the coffee. Taking a look at coffee in another part of Latin America, we can see coffee entered Mexico from Cuba as early as the 1740s. It entered through Veracruz, with most giving credit to the Spaniard Juan Antonio Garcia for its arrival. 
Mexico already had atole, a corn-based drink, and chocolate, both of which acted as stimulants, leading coffee to be slow to take off in the country. The popularity of coffee plantations increased initially from Italian and German migrants who utilized the country's indigenous population as cheap laborers. It took around a century for coffee to take off as a mainstream export, but by the 1870s, coffee began to sell in bulk out of Veracruz, Oaxaca, and Chiapas. Unlike many other places in the world, it was small coffee plantation owners who were the most successful in Mexico, making good profits, while the larger industrial producers found it hard to make their money back. Coffee in the 20th century helped build up Mexico's economy. During the period of Porfirio Diaz's regime from 1877 to 1911, Coffee, as well as other plantation workers such as sugar and tobacco, were brought in through tricks and bribes and even kidnapping. In many cases, these laborers suffered high mortality rates from the harsh work conditions. El Salvador, what did you say? El Salvador, during this period, saw the exploitation of indigenous workers Beginning in 1879, the Mayan population of El Salvador had its lands taken and traditional system of common lands and communities destroyed. For the next few decades, the Mayans grew tired of this abuse, leading them to revolt, setting coffee plantations and processing facilities on fire in 1832. This led to the Montanza, or Massacre tens of thousands of indigenous Salvadorians. Following this, the government created a mounted police force, and as the local plantation owners grew more wealthy, they used militia forces to hold power over the indigenous population. Nicaragua entered the coffee market a bit early, starting in the 1860s but was never as successful as other countries due to indigenous resistance. The land suitable for coffee growing is in the northern highlands, which were occupied by indigenous peoples. There was a rebellion in 1881 by indigenous people who demanded an end to forced labor. Nicaragua was able to put a stop to the main rebellion, killing over a thousand people, but local resistance still remained. In 1893, a new leader, José Santos Zelaya, took over the country. Zelaya was the son of a coffee planter and was able to increase the country's coffee production. The resistance from native communities was still in effect by the end of his term of office in 1809. This resistance to coffee growing was so intense that during his term in office, the owner of the largest coffee production company in the country was assassinated. We've seen everywhere in the Americas where large coffee production took off. It led to forced labor, mistreatment of indigenous populations, and some form of revolts or revolution. Costa Rica, then, is the big exception to the rule, with the opposite results of more equality, a democratic government, as opposed to military regime, and a system of small farmers instead of the early coffee estate-owning elite. A Spaniard, Don Francisco, is credited with bringing coffee to Costa Rica from Cuba in 1779. 
Costa Rica, which means rich coast, began coffee production early, around 1830. Unlike other parts of the Americas, they had a much smaller indigenous population by the 19th century. Due to its extensive and early colonization by Europeans, who introduced many diseases, wiping out much of the population. Because the country did not have easy access to indigenous labor, and because they began coffee cultivation early on, they developed a system of small farms which did not need forced labor. The rich soil proved very useful for coffee growth, and the farmers developed a system of commercial harvesting in which families helped one another. The country on the whole managed most of the internal issues revolving around coffee harvesting and processing, resulting in overall peace amongst all of its different groups of farmers and processors. Due to the country's greater social equality, it was possible for anyone, including indigenous people, to increase their financial and social standings through hard work and entrepreneurship. So is coffee's history in Latin America a tragedy? We've seen multiple examples of countries attempting to increase coffee production by utilizing varying forms of slave labor and servitude including St. Domingue, which we discussed previously. Does this make Costa Rica an exception to the overarching rule, or does it disprove the rule? As is often the case in history, there may be no clear-cut answer to this question. But we will return to Latin America in our story in the near future, and examine other countries to see what course their governments took to grow the magical bean. This show is written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. For the price of a latte month, you can support this and future projects in the series. Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you can message us through social media or at our email, completehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, and make sure to share it with your friends. To close, here's a quote from Nathan Wolf. Coffee is the nectar of the gods.